0: Good afternoon. Happy Easter to everyone. I would uh, like to welcome all of us here, Uh, especially we'd like to welcome our visitors. Uh, I'd like to thank our team for leading us in song as we celebrate Easter. And as we uh, begin, can you please uh, turn with me to to the Bible? I'll be reading two passages from Scripture. First, we'll be reading the entirety of Psalm 16, and then Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 37. The verses will come up on screen so if, you're, uh, if, you, if you prefer that. Psalm 16 says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God Shall multiply their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips The Lord is my chosen, chosen portion and my cup you hold my Lord The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed I have a beautiful inheritance I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand I shall not be shaken Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Acts chapter 2, from verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, And signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also it dwelled in hope. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Let's pray, Father God. We thank you, Lord, for this Easter Sunday, for once again bringing to our focus the the death, the burial, and most of all, Lord, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because of which we have hope today in our life and in our death that we will be with you forevermore. As we spend some time in your Word, may your Spirit guide us and lead us, and may we rejoice in your presence forevermore. In Jesus' name, we ask. Amen. You know what I was thinking was that. Um, it 's very hard to to be in an Easter service if you don 't actually believe that Easter happened. What do I mean by that? You can go to Christmas services in fact i 've been to Christmas services where you know the church or the preacher doesn 't actually believe that, that Jesus was born of a virgin. So the way they spin it is oh you know, someone so important came into one of the lowliest situations in life. He was born into poverty it 's a model of of how we can go through life because someone a great teacher was born into a lowly condition. You can even preach Good Friday without actually believing that, that you know, Jesus rose from the dead because you could say even the, even the best of people this world persecutes. But it's very hard to preach on Easter or to be in an Easter service where if you don't actually believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Why is that? How would you spin the central claim of Easter that a man that he died... But that he didn't stay dead; that he rose from the dead, and not only that, that he didn't just rise from the dead to die again, but that he will never die and live forevermore. That is a very hard claim to interpret otherwise than uh, than what it actually says. And and Christianity resides on the truth of the crucifixion. The Christian faith is incomplete without the crucifixion. You know our. In the, in the word of God, in a, the apostle Paul says in First Corinthians chapter 15, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. And it says later on, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins basically the entirety of christianity whether it's true or not resides on the fact whether jesus christ rose from the dead and whether we believe it if you do not believe that he rose from the dead then you cannot be a christian that's what the bible says there's no other way to 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 um, to say that you know the gospel what paul is talking about here is jesus christ the eternal son of god who took on human nature including a body And he lived a sinless life here on this earth and he was condemned to die without reason but under the sovereign plan of God so that he might die in order to pay for our sins and to redeem the people who follow him from the slavery of sin. He was crucified on the cross and he was buried in the tomb. But then he rose again bodily, not just spiritually, bodily after three days and he was lifted up into heaven and he's coming back again for those who have put their trust in him. That is Christianity. And if we do not accept that, then this service is meaningless. There's no Easter service without accepting that the resurrection is real. We accept the resurrection because it is the word of God, because like Peter says here, he and many others, at least 500 people, were witnesses to the fact that Jesus Christ came to them after he had been confirmed to be dead Because the tomb is empty, and there's never been a plausible explanation given as to why the tomb is empty. And because if the tomb was not empty, Christianity would have had no reason to grow or to be the backbone of a church that has survived and thrived and flourished for 2,000 years. If this was all a tale, this would be just like any other faith that changes form over time or dies out. But the central claim of Christianity has rung out for 2,000 years, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that he is coming back. So we accept it, because if we do not accept it, I have no other way to preach. But having accepted that, today we look at something that is impacted by the reality of Easter, the reality of the resurrection from death that was exemplified and inaugurated by Jesus Christ. And that is the fear of death, which can be overcome, which has been overcome because of Easter. We have the hope of life that overcomes the fear of death because the Bible promises that those who follow Jesus are no longer in their sins, And that they will be resurrected from the dead into eternal life with God. Not just a spiritual resurrection, but a bodily resurrection of which Christ is the first example. Why do we fear death? See, humans fear death because if you think about it, there's something unnatural about death. Our creativity... Our, our initiative, you know, to, to, to do so many things, to, to climb mountains, to go into space, you know, as Star Trek says, to, 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 to boldly go where no one has gone before, seems to show that we do not accept the constraints of time on our life, and we recognize that death is so abrupt that it can cut down the potential of life when we go to the funeral of someone who is young. How often do you hear he had so much more to offer? Or or she was taken away from us too soon. So we recognize that death is unnatural. You know, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse eleven, that God has placed eternity into the hearts of mankind, that, that we are meant to live forever. Therefore, the, 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 the feeling of death seems like an unnatural constraint. But the Bible also says, and as we were seeing and hearing, that death is the result of our forefather, Adam, his original sin against God, where he disobeyed God and, and said, I would rather take myself over trusting you. And, and when God punished him, death became the seal of the punishment that separated them from God. Not only was their spirit eternally separated from fellowship with God, but also their flesh was condemned to go back into the dust. Dust is dust, as Genesis chapter 3 says. So death is the rightful end of sin. And and as long as sin rules over us, death is our fate that we have to accept. So we fear death we fear death in our life because we recognize that we may be here and gone tomorrow. That that there is the stench of death in our bodies, that, that as we grow and as we age, our organs decay and our, and our faculties, our mental abilities, they diminish. And we fear that once we are gone, the memory of us will be forgotten. That is, that in is other words, from the scripture that rings true. Indeed, the fear of death is in one way the fear of life itself. Since we are not free to live life as it should be lived because we live it under the specter and the cover of death. See, Shakespeare uh, said this in in Hamlet. He said, uh, he that cuts off 20 years of life cuts off so many years of fearing death. See, there are many people who would say, I fear death so much that I would rather not live so that I can bring forward death and not have to fear it anymore so our lives are filled with this tension, with this struggle with this yearning to create meaning that exists beyond us whether it be through children or through buildings and monuments to, to prolong life to, de- to delay death to seek security in the latter years of our life, so that we can enjoy something of life because we cannot enjoy it now because we are toiling away under the fear of death. And if you're religious and you believe in some sort of afterlife, then the fear of, of working in this life to earn some favor in the next and then being unsure what happens after you die. See, our lives are not filled with joy and peace, but rather it's filled with toil and distress because death and, and its many arms covers like a cloud, threatening to lay waste, to the pursuits of our life. So we are afraid to die, but we are also afraid to live. So the question before us today and every day is how do you get rid of the fear of death and live life fully? Not just to overcome the fear of death, but to truly understand what it means to live. And when we read from Acts, we read of Peter who talks of David, the psalm which, was, which we read and which was quoted again in, 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 the, in the book of Acts. See, David was someone who lived his life without the fear of death. He lived his life with hope because he put his trust in the living God. The living God, who as he says later on in Psalm chapter 36, is the giver of life. He says, God, you are the fountain of life. So David was the great king of Israel. He was not perfect, he was not sinless, but he was a man after God's own heart because he put all of his hope in God. And the psalm that we read we, is probably taken from a very early period in his life, probably before he even was formally and officially appointed king. When he was still running from his enemies, including the then king of Israel who were trying to kill him. And we read in the psalm, you know, he says he, he lays hold of God as his refuge. He doesn't put his hope in, fort, in forts or palaces. He seeks his preservation from God. He says, God, you're my refuge. He says, I have no good apart from you. All the goodness of his life stemmed from his relationship with God. He sought to be in fellowship with those who are like-minded. He said, I want to be with the people who have similarly put their hope and joy in the living God. And in his life, he was asked to curse God or to follow some other God for some reason or the other, whether that be for politics or for relationships. But he said no. Even at the cost or the risk his life because he said, even if I have no inheritance or security in this world my inheritance my security, my portion is the Lord himself he says, my portion and my cup is the Lord you know, like when you slice a pie and there's a portion that you reserve for yourself, it's the same meaning he says, my delight my enjoyment, my pleasure does not come from anything in this world it comes from knowing the Lord and then he goes on to say that the Lord is his counselor and he is the instructor that he has. You know, there's a very interesting verse in, in Psalm chapter 16. It's in verse 8. It says, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. You know, we often say, you know, Jesus is at the right hand of God or we will go to be at the right hand of God. But he's saying God is at my right hand. He's saying God is my helper. He upholds me. He treats me like a friend and he will not abandon his friends. And because of that, I will not be shaken by any of life's circumstances. He has stability in his life. So he has hope, he has joy, he has pleasure, he has fulfillment, he has security, he has stability in the Lord. And then we go on to verse 9 and 10 and say, what is the ground for his hope and his joy in life? In verse 9 of chapter 16 it says, he says, Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. He says, My heart, my being is glad, and my whole being rejoices. That's also translated, My tongue rejoices. Like, I express my joy. And then he says, My body, my flesh dwells secure. He's saying, you cannot threaten my soul. You cannot threaten my body with death because all of my soul and my flesh rests secure in the Lord. And why is that? What is his hope? What is his confidence? What is the reason why all of the things that he has said before this verse, he holds true? Verse 10. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. He said that I trust in the living God. And if I trust in the living God, and if I do not believe that God can rescue me from death, that if instead I believe that death will overcome me in such a way that I will not be able to enjoy the presence of the Lord again, then it would mean that death is more powerful than God. And he says, God is life. And there's no way that death can be more powerful than life. Therefore, he says, you will not abandon me to Sheol. And what is Sheol? Sheol is just a literary term used for the grave. The Bible uses the word Sheol to, 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 to highlight the fact that the grave has an endless hunger hunger and appetite for people. So, you know, the word grave, it, 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 it is under the ground. When they use the word sheol, it says, people, we live over the ground, and we look up to heaven, where God resides, which is above us, but when we are under the ground, we are separated from God in such a way that we can no longer partake, not only of life, but also of fellowship and the presence of God. That's where the Bible uses the term Sheol to signify that the grave has more meaning than just being a pit. Just like we use Mount Zion or the River of Jordan. It's not just the physical dimension of the grave that is important, but the potential that it has to separate people, not just from life, but from God himself. And so why does he trust that God will not abandon him in the grave, because he believes in the timeless promise of God. You see, the Bible is full of verses which says, God's love endures forever. His mercies endures, endure forever. Right? When, when we get married, we say, I will love you forevermore. You know, it's wink, wink. right? It's like, Til, till death do us part. Right? But, but what David is saying is that when God says, my love, my mercy, my faithfulness endures forever, I will take it to mean forever. Secondly, he believes that God will not abandon him because of who God is. He is life. He is the giver and sustainer of life. But also because of how he calls himself. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, verse 31 to 32, which should come up on screen, this is Jesus speaking to some people who doubted that the resurrection was real. He says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? that I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus goes on to say, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. This is a strange verse. How do we make sense of it? He's basically saying, the reason why you are wrong, that there is no resurrection. Why there is a resurrection is because God calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And you well know that Abraham died, that Isaac died, and Jacob died. And if God is calling himself the God of Abraham, if he has taken the name of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and attached it to himself, then, logically, you have to believe that God would not identify himself with those who are dead, but rather God being life only identifies himself with those who are living. So therefore, what Jesus is saying is that Abraham is not dead. Isaac is not dead. Jacob is not dead because God has chosen to call himself their God. That is the identity of God. So his trust in resurrection, David's trust in resurrection, is rooted in the promises and the identity of God. And then we go on to verse 11, or or the latter half of verse 10. He says you will not see your Holy One see corruption. He does not believe that the resurrection is merely spiritual, but it extends to the body. You know, it says, let your Holy One see corruption. Literally, that verse is rendered, let your Holy One see the pit. What is the pit? The pit is just, you know, the, once again, it's the grave. But here he's talking about the ability of the, of the grave or of the pit to consume our bodies, from dust you came, and unto dust you shall return. Where we become one with the pit. And so he says if God is promised to resurrect me, I am not satisfied with merely being spiritually resurrected, but I have to be resurrected as a whole being, soul, spirit, and body. He is not content to have death, have any claim over any part of himself. And if you think about it, he says, I will not let the pit have the last of me and, and as it rendered or see the Holy One or let the Holy One see corruption. Corruption means, according to ancient Jewish um, thinking, that the body would have to be raised within three days. That is David's hope. He's saying that ultimately, I believe that God will resurrect my me from the grave and he will raise me up in three days, before the pit has a chance to corrupt my flesh. But David's hope, as we read in Acts, was not to be actualized in his own life. If you read Second Samuel chapter seven, verse twelve to thirteen, at the end of David's life, you know the prophet uh, Nathan comes to him and says, "When your days are fulfilled." And you lie down with your fathers, that means you die. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David knew he was going to die. David knew he was not the one who was powerful enough to overcome the constraints of the grave. But his hope was real but it awaited fulfillment through a descendant of his who would be someone that the grave could lay no claim on. And that is what Peter is talking about. That David is not talking about himself, but that the Holy Spirit gave him a prophetic vision about Jesus Christ. Because Peter says, David's tomb was well known and it was well guarded and its contents remained. Like people knew David's uh, material remains was within the tomb. The Romans uh, desecrated David's tomb once to to get rid of, uh, to to take some treasures from the grave. And then when Herod tried to do it again, uh, he thought better of it, and so he sealed the tomb. But they confirmed that David was still there. That's the ludicrousness of the same people then saying that, oh, David's tomb is well-guarded, but somehow Jesus' tomb was was you know, like that somehow the disciples were enough, these, these fearful men were enough to steal Jesus' body, but no one could steal David's body. So David's tomb was well known. But Peter says that the oath that God swore to David had his fulfillment in Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who was born into humanity, who was a sinless one, who was fully God and fully man, who in his body, he, he, he contained the fullness of, of deity, of all godly attributes. He's God and he's life itself. In John chapter 11, verse 25 to 27, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. His power over death and His being the life and the resurrection was one of the central claims of His testimony that He was the Son of God, the Messiah. And yet, when Pilate sentenced Him to death on the cross, it looked like even the Son of God could not overcome the power of the grave. And if you think about it, both His enemies And perhaps his followers kind of said the same thing. The enemies taunted him that if you are the son of God, bring yourself off the cross, do not die. And his followers also awaited a rescue for their master from the cross. But he was not rescued, he died. And his lifeless body, was cradled by his mother and, take, and then taken into the tomb. And there was a stone put over the mouth of the grave to signify that the grave had indeed even seemingly claimed him as a victim. You know, There's an old hymn which says, O sorrow deep, who would not weep with heartfelt pain and sighing? God the Father's only Son in the tomb is lying. Blessed shall they be eternally who ponder in their weeping that the glorious prince of life should in death be sleeping. That is the story of Good Friday. But death, as we know, because of Easter, was not to have the final say over Jesus Christ because it had no claim over him. Unlike every man who entered his craft. there was no sin in him, so death could not keep its hold over him. Death had no power over him because he was life itself, life eternal God who could not be defeated by death. And so in fulfillment of David's prophecy, Peter said he rose from the grave, being raised up by God. Peter says uh, in Acts chapter 2 that the pangs of death were loosed because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The pangs of death literally mean labor pain. He's saying that death gave birth to life. Indeed, death gave birth to new life. The new life which is qualitatively better than the old life because it's a glorified life. And the new life which is quantitatively better than the old life because it's an eternal life. Once life has overcome death, it is both better in its quality and in its quantity. And that's what Jesus signified. And this Jesus was lifted up into heaven to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. And he is the first born of the dead, as Hebrews and Colossians says, which means that he is the first of many who will, whose new lives will arise from the grave, both spirit and soul and body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21 to 23 says, For as by a man... Came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. What Paul is saying is that his resurrection inaugurates resurrection life for all those who follow him and seals the hope and promise of David in Psalm 16. And he says that even though we may die before he comes back, we have the hope that our bodies will not be consumed by the grave. Rather, they will be resurrected when he comes back again for us. And because of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and because of the reality of the fact that he lives today forevermore, and so do the people who follow him, And who die before he comes. And yet they are promised that they will enter into the presence of God, not just in spirit, but also with their bodies when he returns. And because of the reality of the resurrection, the church is not a memorial to the dead. The church is not a memorial to those who have gone before us. Rather, the church is a testimony to life and to the Lord of life who has triumphed over the grave. That is Easter. It is a testimony that death has no longer any power over the people of God. So then, how are we to live life without the fear of death? How do we have resurrection faith and have that in our lives today? First off, as Peter says, you have to be found in Christ and take hold of the resurrection that he provides In Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 38, he says, when they heard this, the people, they were cut to the heart. And they asked Peter, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You cannot lay hold of eternal life in the presence of God when we lead our lives mingled with the sin that leads to death and separation from God. Therefore, To lay hold of resurrection hope, you have to first repent of your sins and lay your sins, the burden of your sins, at the cross of Jesus Christ where he died to pay the penalty for them and thereby enter into the hope of his resurrection. Secondly, if we believe that Jesus Christ indeed has risen from the grave, we need to live life in the confidence that death has no claim over us. For this, we look back to David In Psalm chapter 16, the last verse, verse 11, he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See here, he doesn't say, You make known to me the path to life. Many of us live our lives hoping and waiting that we will die. Knowing that there is something better. But David says, You have made known to me the path of life. You see, the path of life means that life is not the goal of the path, but rather the path is life itself. And why is that life itself? Because it is spent in the presence of God who is life. That means today we are on the path of life in the presence of God. We do not live under the claim of death. And then he goes on to say, without a break... It, that path of light will lead into eternity, pleasures forevermore at his right hand. See, there's again, the quality of life is different. There's fullness of joy. There are pleasures. And the quantity of life is different. He says, forevermore. Because of the resurrection hope that we have, we have a new life that is better in every sense than the life that we live. So then, Are we able to find our refuge in this life, not in the life to come, in this life in God? To say all our good is in Him, that He is our chosen portion and our beautiful inheritance. Are we able to listen to His counsel and to set Him before us on our right hand, on the path of life, so that we can confidently say that we will not be shaken, that our flesh, our mind, our spirit all of it is secure in the hands of God, that he will not abandon us in the grave, that even if our days on this earth were to end tomorrow or were to end naturally, the pit will not consume our body, but that it will be resurrected when He comes back for us. If we can say that with full confidence, because we have placed our hope in Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn from the dead, then we can live our life confidently knowing that death has no more hold over us, that we do not fear death and what it can do to our soul and to our body. You know, this past year, in 2017, <coughs> there were at least like three movies that came out on 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 the um, invasion uh, or on the, um, the what they call the miracle of Dunkirk, which was in the summer of 1940 more than 350,000 British soldiers were trapped in this this little landlocked uh, waterlocked kind of a piece of land in France and the Germans were coming on their way and they had no escape because on one side was the water and the other side was the advancing German forces and it seemed like they were all going to be massacred. The entirety of the British army, 350,000 people. We're going to be massacred by the by the tanks and the planes of the German forces. And when it seemed certain that the Allied forces, that is the British forces at Dunkirk, were about to die or about to be massacred, a British naval officer cabled back just three words to London in a telegram. And the telegram read, but if not. And the entirety of the, of, the, of the army and the nation at that time, the leadership, recognized what he was saying. All the telegrams said was, but if not. And they recognized that he said that, quoting the words in Daniel chapter 3, verse 17 to 18, which is the story of, of, of these three young men who refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar condemns them to die in a fiery furnace, and so their hope is that if this be so, our God this is Daniel chapter three, verse 17 to 18, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O king." Verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And that's what the British officer are saying, that we will not surrender that even if we are not rescued, we will not surrender to the forces of evil. These three young men in the book of Daniel, they said, even if our God does not rescue us, we do not fear what you threaten to do to our soul and to our bodies, because we will not be abandoned by God in the grave. But if not, this Easter... May we find our joy in the path of life that leads to the presence of God, to the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at his right hand. May his name be glorified. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this time, for once again reminding us of the beauty of your word and, Lord, the hope that it brings us, knowing, Lord, that our Savior has risen from the grave, that he lives forevermore at your right hand, bringing his people to himself, interceding for us, and giving us the hope that we need not just to survive in this life, not just to, to, to go on in life, but rather a lot to flourish and thrive in your presence, knowing that you are all that is good, that in your presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, so we can live our life confidently, without fearing that death has any claim over our spirit or our body. And we look forward to the day when you come back, Lord, when this hope will be made real, when those of us who lay in the grave, who lie in the grave awaiting your return will be resurrected physically in order to be with you for our more. In the meantime, o Lord, give us the strength and the confidence to live our life without the fear of death because we have claimed you as our Savior and as our Lord and because you are life and the resurrection, we have life and we will have resurrection. May your name be glorified. We ask in the name of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.